as an academic, you don't get tenure or you don't become famous unless you own a particular phenomena or theory or body of knowledge. It is the Wild West. Uh, there are other things going on. There are simultaneous effects happening. There's a tussle between people's motivations to accomplish what's best for themselves versus best for society overall. And so there's so many other confounding effects that we don't detect or can't detect in the simple lab experiments or the simple cafeteria experiments that I wholeheartedly agree with you. Our popular literature does not do a good job of representing the science. And I think that's a bit of a problem. Welcome everyone, new listeners and old, to A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast for curious, nosy people like you who want to understand what's going on between our ears and why we behave as we do. Now today I'm excited to welcome Dilip Soman and Nina Mazar to the podcast to talk about their new book, Behavioural Science in the Wild, which is hitting the virtual and physical shelves on May the 15th, so do look out for that, I highly recommend it, unsurprisingly. Now, let me introduce the guys first, then we'll come on to the subject of the book. Dilip Soman is a Canada Research Chair in Behavioural Science and Economics, and he serves as a Director of the Behavioural Economics in Action Research Centre at Rotman, acronym BEAR. That was a mouthful and a half. And as well as his imminent book release, he's also the author of The Last Mile and The Behaviourally Informed Organisation. He teaches the MOOC, short for Massive Open Online Course, Behavioural Economics in Action, and as I was delighted to learn, Dilip is a big cricket nut like myself. Nina, uh, not a huge cricket fan as far as I'm aware, but nevertheless is a esteemed behavioural scientist focusing on topics ranging from ethics to social and environmental impact with multiple strings to her bow. She sits on the board of Irrational Labs, uh, which is dedicated to designing products that make people happier, healthier and wealthier. No harm in that. She's also part of a team of scientists of the Behaviour Change for Good Institute at Wharton. She helped establish the World Bank's Behavioural Insights Initiative, Embed, to use behavioural science to make development interventions, pardon me, more effective, and with Dilip, co-directed Bear at Rotman. She also founded BE Works, one of the first commercial consulting companies dedicated to the application of behavioural economics to real-world challenges. There, she remains chief scientific advisor. (coughs) Oi, 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 a bit of a cough. We'll let that go. In my conversation with the pair, we talk about BS in the wild, the subject of the book, of course, and that's all about translating behavioural science from the academic laboratory to messy real-world environments and all the challenges and benefits that this work brings. Really, what a thrill for me to host two such fertile minds to talk a load of BS with. Please enjoy it. Dilip and Nina, welcome to a load of BS. I'm delighted we're talking together today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Daniel. Great to see you both. Now, particularly, of course, just before an important, hopefully momentous time in your publishing careers, and that's the release of a new book on behavioral science, Behavioral Science in the Wild, which you've compiled together and which will be on release this May. And if I may briefly paraphrase, I think the central tenet of this set of broad-ranging essays is the translation and application of behavioral science in the lab from small-scale academic experimentation 
into the messy real world. And it's a fascinating and important topic because when I reflect on how behavioral science makes sense to me, as actually defined by my friend Paul Craven, who says how real people make real decisions in the real world, it strikes me just how relevant and powerful your subject is. So on that note, has this subject matter always been central to your interests? Or what brings you both to this point now? Why do we need to be discussing this? So let me jump in. I'll tell you about my journey and why this is so central to everything I do. Paul's comment resonates the whole notion of real people making real choices. Our academic research is full of unreal people making unreal choices. And so you pick up the average journal paper in psychology and there will be what are called weird subjects, participants, Western, educated, industrialized nations, students often, and they're given hypothetical choices to make. And then we take that and we extrapolate that to the whole world. And that always left me a little bit dissatisfied. So it was always sort of in my front and center to think about how we can make the science more applicable to real life, that we can actually take a conclusion from a research paper and then show that it is truly valid in the real world. But then can we actually help it to change people's behavior? Can we help people make better choices? So that's where I come to all of this from. And about, gosh, is it 14 or 15 years back, Nina joined the faculty at the University of Toronto. And finally, I had somebody else who thought on those same lines. And so I think that's where our collaborations began. We set up a center together. And now, of course, this book. And so that's how I got to it. And, and I suspect Nina has a similar story to share there. Yeah, <laughs> relatively similar. I'd have to say, so when I joined the University of Toronto in 2007, Philip was obviously a big influence and he had very good connections. And then we had the opportunity to actually talk to the Ontario government who was interested in the type of research we do to see if there's anything that could be used to improve policymaking. And from there, it all started that we were able to think about, well, what type of research could be really applied to help policymakers? And then also when you think about the book by Thaler and Sandstein, right? The Nudge book was such a big influence also on so many other organizations and so many other governments. And so now suddenly you would see really this big interest on applying our insights, the insights that we are generating as researchers in the field and what become more and more clear to us as we have been trying to do such work and to support policymakers and organizations, it became clear that we don't know so well how to really scale and how to translate those insights. So we thought it is about time to try and compile a book where at least the insights we have so far that could help practitioners on this journey, that such a book would be really helpful at this point in time. Now, Dilip, a year ago or so, you edited the Behaviorally Informed Organization. That's correct. Similar theme, but I wondered, how does the new book build on that? So good question. I think the way we have conceptualized our approach to the research is to say, look, there's some issues with the science and the way in which the science is done and translated. And then there are issues with organizations, which is... The simple idea that universities are built to do science, other organizations are not. I mean, you know, little things like collecting data, doing experimentation, getting ethics approval. I mean, universities have systems to do that. The government doesn't and the leading corporations don't. And so the first book sort of got into more of the organizational issues. We talked about what is it that we can do within organizations to better organize, to better think about the promise of behavioral science. This one now switches focus on the science. And so that's sort of how they 
come together. I think at the, at the end of the first book, we kind of made a note saying, look, it's all fine and dandy to have an organization that's excited and enthusiastic about the science, but let's fix the shop first. Let's make sure if you learn something from experiments, can you actually move and change directions accordingly? And it turns out in many orgs, you can't because we have long planning cycles and we have strategy meetings to go through and approvals. And then sometimes we do things that the experiments will tell us will take a long time to show results. And then we can't do that in orgs because we have quarterly reports to do. So those are the kinds of issues we raise there. But at the end, we sort of talked about the fact that because of all of these external pressures, we as applied scientists need to deliver science in a way that organizations can actually use, right? So there's a fairly elaborate process where you look at a research paper and then you try and translate that and think through how would I do it in the wild. People don't have the time to do that because they're dealing with all of this other stuff. And so that's essentially the impetus for putting this together. Yeah, real life gets in the way. It does get in the way. (laughs) I I must say, I love that behavior in the wild is a compendium of stories, if you like, examples and experiments from different territories, different sectors, and of course, different authors. Because for me, if ever you needed to emphasize somehow the importance of variety of context in scaling experiments, here is evidence number one in a way, because at least it certainly makes for a far richer reading experience. And I noticed, of course, Dilip, that you replicated that approach from the behaviorally informed organization. And I wondered whether you both naturally lean towards this more collaborative style of writing rather than putting your own names in the limelight like most writers like to do. I'll go first simply because I have that experience from the behaviorally informed organization. So I will say it's a lot more work. You know, I think we could have kind of sat in our offices and cranked up a book much faster than we did. But I think the value for us, and as you say to the field, is in showcasing the fact that it's not just two people who are complaining about it. That even the authors of papers that supposedly show that X causes Y are jumping in and saying, hang on, not always that, you know, here's things to think about, right? So so for me, I think it was important to be as inclusive as possible and, and give all of our authors a platform to highlight the nuance in the research. And, and I suspect for Nina as well. So easy to crank a book out. Absolutely. And, you know, like speaking for myself, even though I'm a behavioral scientist, I'm not an expert on every single topic. And one of the issues when it comes to translating the existing research from papers to the real world is that oftentimes authors don't have the ability in their published papers to really outline all the intricacies and nuances that are really important details when it comes to understanding how to scale and how to translate. And so who better than to really ask the various experts on different types of interventions or different substantive matters to really talk about what they have discovered and what things they thought are important and what their insights also are in terms of what do we actually know? Like, for example, when do social norms work? Under what circumstances? Has this been replicated? Is it generalizable, right? I mean, I would myself have to do that research to find out because I'm not an expert on social norms. But here we have, for example, Christina Bigieri, who is, and she's like many other of these authors that we have in our book, we're willing to contribute their insights. Yes, she is the social norms guru, I think. It's fair. She definitely is, yeah. <laughs> I suppose your your task here in, in putting this book together is rather different from normal because it's about editing rather than just writing. And I wondered how what the challenge is in terms of how then you make a book coherent, how you actually make it readable and usable. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I do think there was a lot of work that went 
into thinking through the structure in the first place. So by the time we identified who the right people were and got them on board and got them excited about it, we had to be very precise in terms of what messages we were trying to communicate with the book as a whole. Because as you know, if I just go to a colleague and say, you know, could you write a chapter on XYZ? It could take one of many different directions. So I think it was a lot of early work that went in. And then, of course, the process uh, was fairly iterative. So people came back to us with drafts and clarifications. And there was that. There was also helping people make connections across chapters. So initially, obviously, everybody did their thing. And then as the palette started filling up, I mean, people would say, oh, yeah, that's kind of like the point that so-and-so made in chapter three. So th- I think that was the other thing that, that we played a role in is, is really trying to get that convergence in. So I'd say a lot of homework before and then just a lot of coordination of content as the book started developing. I definitely noticed that actually the point you made that as you read through the book, authors are referencing back to earlier chapters, which demonstrates a level of work that otherwise doesn't normally go in. I mean, what impact then do you both hope that the book has? I mean, how, or or let me put it this way, how do you envisage corporate practitioners using it? So from my point of view, I'm hoping that, for example, if you're working in the domain of financial decision-making and if you're trying to improve that, right, that you can actually take our book and you see, oh, there is actually a chapter on what do we know about behavioral interventions when it comes to financial decision-making. So they can look that up and see, okay, well, maybe the paper that they came across is and they thought of applying ends up actually being a single paper that has shown an effect. But maybe there are X many others that have actually shown that it does not lead to a successful outcome if you apply a certain intervention. So teaching or giving some tips to practitioners, are they on the right track with the ideas that they had in terms of interventions? Like how likely is it that that intervention will be successful? And also learning if you want it to be successful, what are the necessary requirements for that? Because again, like when you read a single paper, those kind of insights are not necessarily revealed. But if you have a whole chapter that really dedicates itself to what do we know about interventions in that field and how often have they worked, where have they worked, under what circumstances? That should lead to a more successful outcome for practitioners and they're saving much more time because you would have to read up on all these papers. And in the first place, you would have to identify which papers to actually read. So I I think Nina raises an important point. I remember growing up, there was this story, this fable I read about the five blind men and the elephant. And of course, they touch different parts of the elephant. And one of them says, it's like a wall out here. And then somebody else touches a trunk and says, it's like a hose. And somebody touches the tail and says, it's like a rope. And I think people in practice, even people in academia that tend to focus on single papers, do that. They don't see the elephant. They just see a part of the elephant, like, you know, because every research paper by definition can only portray one aspect of a complex problem. So I guess I'll say if we can help practitioners see the elephant across domains, that would be a big win. And I think part of it is also the process is to sort of question the evidence a little bit and ensure that practitioners think about whether the conclusions in a given paper apply in my setting sensitize them to the fact that my setting might be different. And if the setting is different, we know the results change. And as long as people have that at the back of their heads, next time they read a research paper, I'd say the book would have been successful. So to me, those two are the big ones. 
I mean, Nina, you mentioned the sort of benefit of having a bank of literature which organizations can refer back to. I wonder, I mean, just to be provocative for the sake of it, but you know, one organizational challenge certainly is always data and its overload, especially where it may conflict on a subject typical of uh, you know, academic research. I wonder whether there's actually a case for organizations ignoring the academic literature at the start of a project to avoid any anchoring bias and just forge ahead with their own assumptions and tests and then maybe refer back to the academic literature after? That's a provocative question. I mean, in an ideal world, an organization is the expert, right, on the customers whose behavior they are trying to improve, right? So from that perspective, I would agree. I mean, if you have a bunch of data, if you've done your own market research and marketing research, in theory, you should be best equipped to think about how to best change people's behavior, right? But at the same time, it is such that there are some really important insights out there that we as researchers have been publishing. And I do think there is that risk that several practitioners in organizations that have heard maybe a few things here and a few things there, and then they just apply them without really thinking things through. And I think this is where the book is helping. Like if you have some insights about, oh, I have heard something about social norms, so why don't I try that? You know, and if you pick up the book and read that one particular chapter, I think you can save some time, some money, some resources, because you will understand better whether that is, in fact, even the right intervention for you to try in your context. So, Daniel, your question actually got me thinking about the following, right, which is, I suspect any piece of literature, any body of evidence can cause one of two effects, one of two mistakes, if you will. So you could argue that presenting people with a lot of evidence, sometimes conflicting, but essentially nuanced, might get them to ignore the evidence altogether. Contrast that with the other mistake, which is people just look at one academic paper, assume that's the truth about the world. And I'm not convinced that, you know, I, I don't know that we know any one of those mistakes is worse than the other. I'm almost tempted to say you are better off essentially cautioning people against the danger of relying too much on one academic paper, right? So in one of the chapters, I call it like this whole notion of nudge shopping, right? Like you go to the nudge store and, and you say, well, look, I'm trying to change. I'm, I'm trying to get people to, I don't know, donate more money. And then you go in and see, well, somebody's done an organ donation study that changes the default. Maybe I'll just do the same. And you essentially take it off the shelf, do exactly what they did in a different domain, different context, and it might not work. And then if it doesn't work, people just essentially reject the science. It's like, you know, I did it. This was a well-cited paper. Everyone's talking about it. I tried it in my domain. And to me, that also is not a good outcome, right? So I think to the extent that we get people in practice, we get behavior change specialists to essentially pause and think about every single thing. I still think that's a better outcome than sort of, you know, relying solely on one study. So Short answer, I think it's an empirical question. We don't really know, but you're right. I mean, I think it, it is possible. I still think there's, there's benefits, but good question. I mean, it's, it's something we could do research on now. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a question of balance. Certainly in the organizational context, time is always of a premium. Maybe it's unrealistic to assume that practitioners are going to be sitting rifling through five or six different academic papers and weighing up different... That's probably not how life works anyway. So therefore, your book is a proxy or a shortcut to get into a subject and if they so wish to. That's the way we think about it. I, I still think that the danger of that being seen as overload is perhaps the lesser of the two evils of focusing just too much on one finding. 
Right. I mean, the nudge shop sort of comment is interesting. And of course, Dina, you mentioned the influence of books like Dick Thaler and Cass Sunstein's Nudge. And it made me question or wonder whether some of these popular tomes like Nudge or Dan Ariely's particularly irrational Dick Thaler's misbehaving, with their rather neatly packaged, often diverting and entertaining experiments in the refined air of the Harvard, MIT and Stanford cafeterias, have sort of deluded us from the real life complexity of actually applying behavioral science in the world. I know you would call that perhaps sludge in the system, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two separate issues too. So part of the challenge with the popular books is obviously readers don't want to read about experiments that did not work. And so they only report, as you say, the Stanford cafeteria experiments in which you suddenly change the way or the sequence in which healthy and unhealthy foods are arranged and all of a sudden people are eating healthy. And it seems deceptively simple. The other thing that those books do not do is they do not illustrate the pains that the researcher had to go through to actually get that thing to work is there was there was probably a pilot test and then a debriefing and then a slightly scaled up test and a debriefing and a tinkering and none of that gets in like you just hear about the end result at the end and so I do think you're right I do think we have perhaps deluded the average practitioner into thinking oh this is easy I mean all I'm going to do is change the form or change the color of the display and then all of a sudden people are going to buy my product or do whatever it is you you want them to do so I think that's one problem we need to restore the balance a little bit better there and then yeah the sludge I mean I think the fact it remains that the real world I mean the word in the wild isn't accidental it is the wild west Uh, there are other things going on there are simultaneous effects happening there's a tussle between people's motivations to accomplish what's best for themselves versus best for society overall. And so there's so many other confounding effects that we don't detect or can't detect in the simple lab experiments or the simple cafeteria experiments that I wholeheartedly agree with you. Our popular literature does not do a good job of representing the science. And I think that's a bit of a problem. Yeah, I just wanted to say to defend those books. I mean, they were very important to create a knowledge, right, in the general public and make practitioners aware that there are more tools that they have at their disposal. But yes, I would wholeheartedly agree with Dilip that it's important, however, to recreate that balance because I do think that the public impression went too far into one direction, in part because we as scientists have talked a lot about how nudging is very cheap, it's very fast, it's ethical, so why not use it, right? And we do need to restore that balance. Yeah, exactly. Because I think there is, I don't know whether you consider it an immediate risk, but there may be a credibility issue for the future of behavioral science if we don't take care to give the fuller picture. I think I'm already seeing some signs of that, like this whole folks going into the nut store and trying stuff and not working. As a scientist, I'd say, well, gee, I wonder why that didn't work. Maybe there was something different. But as a practitioner who has so many other things to take care of, I can see the reaction being, oh, gosh, this doesn't work. And we're beginning to see signs of that. So that and the notion that sometimes when you present people with conflicting results, you know, as a scientist, I would say, okay, you know, Daniel has a paper that shows X causes Y. Nina has a paper that shows X doesn't cause Y. Maybe there was some difference in the situation in which X was implemented. As a practitioner, my first reaction is probably going to be, these scientists haven't even got their act together. And so why even engage at all? So I do worry about those things. And I think that's why portraying the reality is important, in my opinion. 
I mean, there is a broader societal issue around polarisation of opinion, whether it's about more mainstream issues like Brexit, COVID, or who's the president, which is that somehow middle ground has fallen out of discussion, which I don't know whether has any kind of knock-on effect when it comes to what we're just saying. Maybe I'm, I'm connecting two things which have no right, <laughs> no right to be in the same breath. But there is another issue here, and this comes up in the book, I can't remember which essay, that books and academic papers tend to focus on a single clean intervention or a psychological process where practitioners in the wild may need to apply a combination of factors to their particular context. Because as we've said, real life tends to be rather messier than the lab. Again, maybe this is a question of balance, but I wonder where you sit on that in terms of whether there's truth in it. Or of course, one can also risk losing signal in the noise of interventions if one's throwing too many things into the mixer. So I'll go, and I know Nina has thoughts on this, so I'll be brief. But I do think this has a lot to do with the incentive structures in academia as opposed to practice. I mean, obviously, every time we get into a discussion of how academia is different from practice, we talk about time limits and problem solving. But I think there are fundamental differences in incentive structures, right? And so what I mean by that is, as an academic, you don't get tenure or you don't become famous unless you own a particular phenomena or theory or body of knowledge. And so if you can imagine... I don't know, mental accounting, which is where I do a lot of my work or ethical decision making when Nina does a whole lot of her work, right? Our interest is in demonstrating those effects across different domains, right? So mental accounting works in purchasing decisions and savings decisions and retirement decisions. That's how I make my career. Whereas you are interested only in the savings business, right? And so I had this really interesting experience a few weeks ago when I was working with the Canadian Consumer Protection Agency. We were doing sort of some work on their budgeting tool. And at the end of that whole exercise, I was asked an important question. I mean, I mean, this was like, how can I improve the budgeting tool? And the research has a lot of answers to that question. And then somebody said, Professor, what about if, you know, if I have a limited amount of money and I could choose to spend that on the budgeting tool or on financial literacy interventions, which one should I choose? What does the research say? And I looked back and I said, you know, honestly, the research says nothing, right? Because financial literacy is somebody else's game. Budgeting is my game. And we don't ever do these horse racing kind of studies, right? So I worry that we therefore tend to get stuck in second order problems. We can help you make the sausage better. But should you be eating a hot dog in the first place or a cup of rice? I don't have answers to that question. So I think that's where I think that fundamental tension comes in. I actually wanted to take it also in a different direction, thinking more about how we oftentimes just apply one intervention to everybody. And maybe even if we do have a horse race, right, then we still look at, okay, if I give everybody in one group the financial literacy intervention and everybody else in this other group, I will do something on a budgeting intervention and then find out on average what works well, right? But from a practitioner standpoint, Customers are very diverse and everybody, well, not everybody, but there are different segments and each segment may act due to different reasons. And so understanding which intervention would work best for which customer segment so that you really optimize your interventions. I mean, those are also things that we as researchers so far have not been doing that much. So we're just looking at averages, which when you have a very homogenous group of participants, may work, but in the real world where you have all these differences between young people, old people, you can think of all kinds of different dimensions. We don't know that that much. And that, it, again, is, I think, also a function of, of how the incentive structures are in academia. Once you have shown something that something works, there is usually not that much interest anymore to see, well, does this also apply maybe in a different part of the world? Does it maybe apply with group X and group Y? 
And if there is no incentive to do that, then you just don't do it as a researcher. Yeah, I mean, both sort of starting to touch on what's often referred to as a replication crisis, which is often refers to, to behavioral science, but also broader social sciences. In other words, the failing of experiments to repeat with any statistical significance. But I mean, it strikes me that a replication crisis is permanent by definition, because, you know, context is always different, and nothing is ever truly replicable. Is that a sensible starting point? Yeah, so I think about this a lot. And I want to make a distinction between the replication crisis for studies that are meant to demonstrate a fundamental cognitive process, a theory as such, versus the kind of game that Nina and I play in, which is more the application game, right? And I think you're absolutely right for the latter. For the application game, I would expect things to be different. In fact, when I go in and work with organizational partners, I start off by saying you probably might not get the same effect. And we should assume that we don't, right? It's a great starting point. It's a good hypothesis, the published research. But I do think the replication crisis in theory could be problematic. Because there we have situations where you're essentially trying to recreate everything in the context that was done in the original study, and still you don't find that replication. That is problematic. Now, part of the challenge there, too, is we never truly know what was done in the original experiment. Because as Nina was saying earlier, we have neither the incentive nor the space in journal articles to report every single thing. And sometimes, like I've done studies where I've got an effect that worked really well, and then it didn't work, and, you know... I created an Excel table. When did we collect the data? Who collected it? Was it a sunny day? What was the weather like? And ex post, you can go look back and say, in our case, it was something to do with time, the experiment. And we could tell ex post, after all this had happened, that during the summer, the effect didn't work. During the winter, the effect worked. But we hadn't thought of that before. So the whole point is like, you know, we don't have that level of detail in our reporting in research. And part of it is, you know, we don't have a standard reporting practice. And I think we need that. The medical sciences field has done a fantastic job with that. They have something called consort, which is a consolidated standard reporting system. I do think it's time for our field to do that because then it gives future researchers a checklist of things that the previous researcher did as they're trying to replicate. But no, I mean, I think for applied research, I don't expect things to replicate. If I may just say for to defend our field. I do think that over the last few years, we have made really tremendous progress, especially with publishing things on the Open Science Network, where there now is the space, right, to put up all the details, to upload your entire set of stimuli. But it is still true that because there are no standards with regards to reporting, some people may actually say at what time in the day they ran a study. And what were the criteria when they, for example, recruited people on various platforms? Like what kind of qualifications criteria they picked, right? So some researchers may say that and others may not because there is no standard. So while we have come a long way, and I think it is important to acknowledge that at OSF and many of these other open science platforms have really done us a big favor. At the same time, we still have ways to go. Yeah, I mean, you both touch on this pressure to make a name for yourself as an academic. I think maybe after a while, you'll know one unless you have a theory bias or effect named after you. And I sort of wonder whether there is this competition to publish sexy stories, if you like, whether that's a real problem in your field. Yeah, again, as Nina says, I think things are improving, but there certainly was. And I think we went, the field went through a phase where it became harder to evaluate the quality 
of people's work. And so we tended to rely on how many papers they published as a heuristic. It's an easy to measure thing. And once scholars recognized that their reputation was made on the basis of how long their resume was, then they tended to pick problems where it was easier to publish as opposed to whether it it actually had a bigger impact. And and so again, it goes back to the incentive thing, right? If I know that I'm going to get tenure or I'm going to have a bigger reputation if in fact I publish 10 instead of five papers, well, let me pick topics that are easier to publish on. And so that's what happened. And I think if we just kind of change our incentive systems in academia to reward impact, I think we'll go back to sort of, you know, more impactful work. Let's get back into the subject of translation. And I want to ask you, Nina, because you set up the World Bank's Behavioral Insights Unit in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. I helped with that. I was not the only one setting it up. I just wanted to clarify. You helped with it. Okay. You contributed. Let's get that right. I contributed, yes. Okay. Fair enough. Maybe I'm talking in the language of CVs too much, where we, of course, we like to upgrade our achievements by at least one notch, even if it was just a contribution. But nevertheless, it strikes me that the World Bank is a large organization of some complexity. And I wonder whether that experience gave you the ultimate warts and all view of taking BS into the wild. I'd be fascinated to know what you learned from that experience. I can definitely tell you that also the insights from the first book that you asked, Philip, about how do organizations actually get ready to really apply behavioral science in their day-to-day work. That is a big challenge for an organization like the World Bank. And that was really an interesting experience for me. And it also makes it very clear to me that that first book that Philip co-edited is a really important one. Because when you have a very big organization, like how do you introduce now a team that has the knowledge about how behavioral science may be able to help when you have an organization that is very decentralized, you know, like you have maybe one part that is in charge of one area in the world. And then there is another group that is working on a different area in the world, like one in Asia, one in South America, and they may be working on similar things, but because they are stuck in these different organizational paths, they don't really talk to each other and they don't share their knowledge. So it was very insightful for me to see that big organizations really have the challenge to find out how to create a network so that different siloed departments talk to each other, especially when they do similar things and how can they support each other, which I think is important because as we have just talked about, the whole idea of translating and scaling behavioral science is also to really know what works in which context, under which circumstances. And there is a lot of knowledge within such large organizations, but what they have to create is a basis so that that knowledge is actually shared. So I think that was one of the big insights for me and certainly also impacted how I view the challenges that practitioners face. And then, yes, when it also comes to translating things. So this is where I felt I could really contribute to what the World Bank was doing is because we were meeting with all these practice teams that have very concrete problems. They're asking me, well, what should we do, right? And so I would go back and I would look through the literature. I would connect with expert friends that I know have insights in those domains. And I would basically try to do what our book is doing. And that really also made it very clear there is a lot of need in the real world, book like what we have now. 
But just to then build on that, and you started to touch on this, but standing back from the World Bank, what are the, I think this is a key discussion, what are the broad lessons that organizations in the wild can apply to replicate, translate, and scale successfully? What are the conditions that need to be in place? How do we make it easier for organizations to carry out experiments and so on? I do think, for example, I think this claim that we made earlier as a field that behavioral science matters is true. I think just that reassurance. At the end of the day, it is all about understanding behavior, but it's not a silver bullet kind of solution. Like we need to think about behavior in the context of the person's motivation and their ability to get things done. If we view that and say, well, do people actually want to change behavior? And if they do, can they do it easily and quickly? I think that's sort of a handy way of thinking through what the right method should be. So are we trying to bust sludge? Are we trying to make it easier? Are we trying to motivate people? And once we have those things in place, then it's really a question of kind of identifying the right research, but using that as a starting point, we recommend what we call in-situ testing, which is try and collect data in the context in which you're going to actually try and change behavior, right? So just because, you know, Majar et al. in a paper showed that this worked, test it. So it's kind of like the Ronald Reagan trust but verify kind of an idea. And so that kind of requires quick testing ability. Again, it doesn't have to be a fully randomized controlled trial, right? At least like even some form of testing done through comparative interviews or surveys. I think better to have some testing than none. And then as you scale, again, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. So do a gradual scale up it, learn. I think that's the way we think about how organizations should adopt the science. There's another question around knowledge transfer, which occurs to me, and by all means, knock me down on this, because maybe I'm overcomplicating the issue. But my question is, is how is the knowledge, learning and insight from lab experience, not only translated into the wild, but transferred? Because I think there's one challenge in scaling a pilot, and we sort of touched a bit on that. But before this, how do we ensure that the sort of good work that behavioral scientists are doing actually travels? I mean, because I suppose in part, this is the role of the book and also what you're striving for at Behavioral Economics in Action at Rotman, which is you know, your institution or Bear for, Bear for short. We've actually been doing some research on this. And I think one of the things we're learning is that practitioners, as you said earlier, don't have the time, don't have the energy, don't have the bandwidth. And so they rely on sort of more condensed versions of our reports. And so I think it's really important that we as scientists focus on what those condensed items are, tend to be media reports, they tend to be podcasts like yours, they tend to be little video clips, you know, things like that. And as again, as scientists, we have no incentive to monitor or check on the quality of those or or the veracity. So we've been trying to think about picking on certain famous papers and seeing how they have been reported over time. Papers published, the journal puts out a press release, somebody picks on that and writes a story. Somebody looks at the story and does a tweet on it. And so before you know it, it becomes more and more simplistic. And you can think about multiple ways in which that voltage drop, if you will, happens across that knowledge transfer pipeline, right? So one way in which knowledge drops off is we lose information on conditionality. So in my paper, I could have said, I showed that X causes Y only if Z is true. By the time it gets to the tweet that Z has been forgotten. And so people all like assume that the paper's about X causing Y. Sometimes you get reverse causality, right? Sometimes you get, I say X causes Y. The media report says, in order to do Y, you must do X. 
which is slightly different from a science perspective. So the so point is we often get loss of fidelity as we go through that transition pipeline, right? What does that mean? I think it means that scientists need to be more engaged. And I'm not saying that we need to write our own press reports, but we need to be engaged in figuring out because it's it's not in our interest for the practitioner to read a simplified version of a report that actually misleads. But that, you're right. I think that is a big problem. So I think we need to put a lot more attention on what that knowledge pipeline looks like. Yeah, I, I don't imagine it happens by osmosis. There definitely needs to be a communication strategy. So, but you're probably, by the way, just as a little book recommendation, since you mentioned Voltage Drop, of course, John List recently published the book of that title, if I'm not mistaken, which I've started reading, which is addressing these sorts of issues, which I also I think is worth recommending. I will also say that the genesis of the chapter that I wrote with Tanjim Hussain and Laura Goodyear was actually John List's book, because we were at a forum at some point in time where we were asked to comment on, on his thesis and that's how we started thinking. So we've been, yeah, we've been following that work for a while. Ah, is voltage drop, is the, does that belong to John? That uh... It actually, the term comes from implementation science and medicine, the idea that fidelity is lost over time. So I think we've both sort of borrowed that idea from implementation science. Got it. Let's dive into maybe a few examples, because a few of the most obvious sectors where behavioral science interventions have untapped potential. I mean, this is probably very uncontroversial to say our healthcare, education and climate, all of which are featured well in behavioral science in the wild. Maybe you'd just like to share one or two interventions that you're both seeing in one or any of these spaces, which excite you. I'd be happy to take it for a staff. I mean, I've been talking a lot about social norms today. I'm not sure why, but I do think there is a lot of really nice research showing that social norm interventions has been applied in so many different fields, whether it's on getting people to pay their taxes, whether getting people to reuse their towels in the hotel rooms in order to save water and energy. So social norms has been really something that has been applied in so many domains successfully. But at the same time, again, there are certain context where it has not been that successful. Like, for example, with the reuse of the towels, like if you want to stick to an environmental domain, it has been shown to work really nice in the U.S., but it has actually been shown to, I believe, even backfire when it was run in Europe. I don't know if it was run in Germany or where it was run in Europe, but, you know, those are important insights to have. But I think social norm has definitely been something that has been one of the more successful and widely applied insights. And then also, I would say, implementation intentions of planning prompts, thinking through how you will act on something increases the likelihood that you will actually follow through. And I think those kind of interventions have been also shown that when it comes, whether it's something like whether you will turn up for voting or whether you will, again, pay your taxes or whether you will show up at the gym and exercise. So few of those that have been really shown to be relatively robust across domains and also across countries. Relatively. So I, I want to pick up on education, actually, because I think that's an interesting area where I don't think we've done as much as we should. But back to this whole notion of motivation versus sort of making things easy. On the motivation piece, I think we now have a lot of data coming through these massive open online courses or basically digital delivery, which we as a field didn't have access to. And there's some really interesting work talking about how to keep people motivated during the entire course, right? And we, we know dropout rates and MOOCs are extremely high, but it could be something as simple as getting people to focus on what they have accomplished so far, as opposed to what's left. Because I think what ends up happening is the so-called classic, I like fishback 
talks about this in her recent book, The Middle Slump, right? You start off, you're gung-ho, you're a new skill, I'm going to be a better person. If you get to the end, there's motivation, which is like, you know, two more lessons and I'm done. It's the middle. And I think essentially she talks about simple interventions where if you get people to simply focus and reflect on how much they've accomplished so far, as opposed to, gosh, I've got like six more weeks to go, they're more likely to stay engaged. So I think motivation, I think, is an interesting one. But on the motivation side, how do we make it easy for people to stay engaged? This work done by several colleagues, including Philip Oriopoulos at the University of Toronto and folks like Todd Rogers at Harvard Kennedy, pre-filling forms, right? So financial aid forms. Why do so many people not apply? Is because the forms appear daunting. In a bunch of experiments, you pre-fill forms with some information that's already populated. And it turns out people are more likely to complete those forms. So like making it easy or or even asking questions about how our education system is structured. Like when I finish grade eight, the default is I go to grade nine. It just happens. I need to do nothing to go to grade nine. But when I finish high school, the default is that your education ends. If you do nothing, your education ends. And so should we as society be thinking about a better default where I say, Daniel, you're done grade 12, you're going to join university XYZ if you do nothing. And does that change the way we think about encouraging people to go to college. So I think those are bigger questions that I think we can contribute to the policy discussion as well. Of course, in the post-COVID world, there are lots of interesting reapplications of how education works. And I think it gives us a far bigger canvas to think about how we provide not only accessibility, but different ways of learning. I think that sits in parallel, by the way, to the work from home versus office debate. I mean, they both sit next to each other, I think, because it's all about kind of information absorption and the use of that and collaboration with other people and all that sort of thing. I imagine that's probably that must be quite a rich area of thinking at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think it is, you say, the digital world has opened up new capabilities. I think it is a mistake for a lot of either educators or people that run sort of, you know, work from home programs to to imagine that digital work is basically going to replicate in-person work. Because there are things you can do online that you cannot do in person. And I think we need to exploit those capabilities better. So in education, for example, I mean, the ability for students to rewatch uh, pieces of content, I think, is amazing. We can't do that in the real world. Or to actually connect with people from halfway across the globe. We couldn't do that in the physical classroom. Or to match their time in which they consume content with how their own body clocks work is something we couldn't do in the classroom. So I think we need to leverage all of that. And if we simply recreate what we doing in the physical world online, we don't get. So to your point, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting questions and a lot of application of behavioral science to that. A lot of interesting questions. And if I may just jump in, but not much insight about what works online versus what works in the real world and why does maybe the translation there not work, right? Yeah. I think taking an analog or offline experience and purely making it online is the very sort of most rudimentary uh, stage of digital transformation. It is not a sort of a whole organization level strategy by any means. But that said, that's where, frankly, many, many organizations still sit in their journey. But talking of COVID, actually, what reminded me, one of the chapters in the book, which I was fascinated by, was discussing psychological vaccines, if not real ones, but it connects to COVID against fake news, of which kind of COVID could be part of that. And in other words, so, you know, using behavioral science to reduce the spread of misinformation, help people discern fact from fiction. And I was interested with, you know, the concept of inoculation against negative content, at least in the chapter in the book, showing positive results, although without them being perhaps yet wholly generalizable. But does this technique, a bit like maybe COVID, require endless booster shots to maintain the effect? Or can one ever reach a point of herd immunity, whether it's about COVID or a another subject? 
Yeah, that's, that is such a fascinating and interesting and important question. And I would say, again, as researchers, like when you look at most of the papers, we just look at one-shot interventions and what is the immediate effect. There are very few papers that look actually what happens to an effect over time. Like, does it wear off? Does it stop? How fast does it stop? Does it backfire at the end? We don't really have much of these insights, but they are super, super important. Or we don't know, like, what happens if I expose people to a certain message over and over and over again? Will at some point the message no longer work? Or is there a certain number of repetitions that is actually needed? And how far spread out should those repetitions be? Those are all questions that, from a practitioner standpoint, are super important. But we do not have that many insights for most of the phenomenon that we are studying, I would say. I was going to say, Nina actually raises another important point, which is perhaps unrelated to this question, but this broader distinction between the way academics view the world and practitioners do, right, is is this whole notion of like, for example, repetition. As an academic researcher, I'm interested in questions such as, does increasing the frequency of exposure change people's belief in that statement, right? If you look at hypotheses, the way they're written in academic papers, it does increasing this change that. As a practitioner, I don't care about the increase as much as how much should I increase it by? Like, is it two times? Is it four times, right? And so that's the other source of mismatch, I think, between in the translation process, which I think Nina's comment illustrates. But yeah, ultimately, these are important, but empirical questions is unless we have the data, we really can't answer those questions. I mean, going back to where we started on COVID, of course, there are so many different angles to address that debate. And we've touched on a few. I think we touched actually before we started recording on the fact that, you know, different governments in different countries treating the issue differently. In my view, by the way, of the UK, and maybe you'll experience this now that you're in London, Dilip, but the government, at least initially advised by their nudge unit, scared the hell out of the population into complying with the rules. It's a bit controversial, but I wondered whether there are times when fear is the right approach. Or in this sort of scenario, should we be looking to, you know, going back to social norms, you know, should we be looking to leverage those to encourage different behaviors? So I'll go back to the horse racing idea that I spoke about earlier is we don't know. And the reason we don't know is we have never, ever encouraged research that compares two different styles of intervention, right? So what would a practitioner do in a circumstance like this? I think the idea of, you know, you call it scared to hell. And I think that simply shows that the intervention went too much in one direction without really any opportunities to see if it is working. And obviously, in a situation like COVID, I can understand why that happened. But in general, if I was looking at something where I had a bit more of breathing room, I would have tried the fear strategy. I would have perhaps ideally tried the other strategy in a different subpopulation and compared the results. Or perhaps I would have tried a little bit of strategy one and then a little bit of strategy two and, and see how sort of the public reacts to it. That's the way I would sort of work with an organization and say, well, if we don't have the research that directly compares these two strategies, let's just do it a little bit at a time, get some feedback and then adjust. So if I may actually add something to that. So I fully agree with what Dilip just said, but what this brings up also, especially as we translate research from the lab to the field, is to think about the ethicality of our interventions and whether we feel comfortable applying those and whether there are certain costs to society. Like if I use a fear strategy and it becomes very extreme, one may want to consider like, what are the effects for society? What kind of stresses 
are they being exposed to and is it worthwhile and how do people perceive such an intervention? So those are, I think, also questions that for researchers, when we do studies in the lab, it's much easier to handle. But I think for organizations, these are important questions to consider as well. As we start to wrap up the main part of the conversation, here's a question which fascinated me as well, alongside the heart of the debate. Do your academic interests influence and lead your corporate work? Or is it the other way around? Or is it a bit of both? Where's the starting point? For me, I can say, while it is both ways, it's primarily from the practice to my research. So it's really more that the questions that are showing up in the real world are the ones that are interesting to me. And then I try to see, well, from a more theoretical perspective, what would I do about it? I have worked less on the other way around because it's also harder, right? Because you come up with something theoretical and it works well in the lab, but there may not be such a problem to solve in the real world after all. And then it becomes less interesting. Yeah, I'm firmly in the same camp. I, I had an advisor when I was getting a PhD who always said, you know, make your research about the world and not about the theory. And I think that stuck with me throughout. And so everything I do is born out of empirical observations. Why do people spend their refunds on vacations instead of saving them? You know, it's, it's stuff like that. And gosh, there's a lot of phenomena out there. So I think my work is really try to explain as much as I can of the world around me. Yeah, there's a sort of parallel question when it comes to organizations, I suppose, you know, should they be looking for burning problems that are right in front of them? Or should they be trying somehow to be ahead of the game? Should they be anticipating future customer expectations or challenges? Maybe there's no precise answer to that question about where should they start? So I, I do think there's a bit of both there. I think if anticipated well, I suspect they will not have burning problems. So I think that should be the holy grail. But again, these are the kinds of questions we raise in the first book where we say, well, this is what a lot of people we spoke to agree. They should be future focused. They should be long term oriented. But there's a Q3 report to file in a month. And so let me just at least get my sales up to the right point. And so I think at the end of the day, it is scarce attention, scarce resources that have to be allocated across the future oriented versus the present. And sadly, the present wins. Let me ask you one last question, then we'll dive into the quick fire. But what have you learned from working together on the book? For me, it became very clear that, but that already happened when I worked with Dylan at Bear. He is, for me, the perfect collaborator because he is thinking big. He's very structured and I tend to get lost in the details and the nitty gritty. So from that perspective, I think we fit really, really well to very different approaches and way of thinking and communicating. And that is perfect. Yeah. And I think the other thing I learned just to add is like, no matter how deeply you think you've thought about something, there are blind spots. It always helps to have a collaborator because they point those out to you. And I think that's the value of collaborating. A lot of people think that if I think long and hard and do the right due diligence, that there will be no blind spots. But gosh, they always are. Good. Shall we wrap up with some quick fire? Absolutely. Hey, let's do it. Is the right answer. So you can both answer these questions or you can alternately as you wish. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? There's a lot. I mean, I remember from early on in my career, uh, senior faculty willing to teach courses so that I could go to conferences because that was important at that point in time. Family members willing to take on load at home. I mean, I can go on and on, but I would say perhaps one of the kindest things was a faculty colleague very early on in my career, who basically told me that I was wasting time on certain kinds of research. And in fact, that my time would be better spent working on applied research. So that I thought was nice of them. 
Cruel to be kind. Makes sense. What's your most powerful memory? Mine is from childhood. I grew up in India, not in poverty, but there was poverty around me. And that still stays with me. And, and that's why I do research in this area is I always wanted to help solve problems like that. But yeah, life and poverty of people around me, I think, is a memory that I can't erase. I would agree with that. Not necessarily poverty, but not being very well educated and how that affects what you're doing and what you know, like simple things such as how do you use an ATM? How you save for retirement? Those kind of things, like learning that that is a big struggle for many people near and dear to my heart. Funnily enough, it made me think in my other work in digital transformation in financial services, what we spend a lot of time discussing is how to help big, wealthy, multinational organizations adjust themselves. And then actually, when one thinks about questions around, say, life insurance penetration, the more important, interesting questions are in developing country where you have sub 1% penetration and how you actually provide access there rather than sort of adding cherry on the cake in the Western world. Tell us something interesting about yourselves most people don't know. I was never planning to join the University of Toronto and I moved there by accident. And when I moved there, I thought I'd spend a year there and then move on to where I was supposed to go. And it's been 19 years and I'm still here. Two months before I actually joined the University of Toronto, I had no idea I would be doing so. I may have never gone actually to high school, (laughs) you know, because I grew up in a household, again, not very well educated. And in Germany, after 10 years of school, you can either go the route where you do a job and a training on the job, or you continue with high school and then you go into university. And I didn't know many people who went to university or to high school. It ended up just being luck that I ended up talking to some people that opened to me this whole new world of opportunities. Um, Yeah, without that, I don't know what I would be doing today. Well, you both talk about luck. It's interesting. I was talking on this podcast last week with Paul Dolan, who's the head of behavioral science at the LSE. And of course, his research is all about happiness. But he also questions the idea of, you call it as a cliche, the American dream, the idea that if you just strive hard enough, you can get there. But what he's saying is, well, wait a minute. Randomness, by the way, plays a huge part, as alongside does genes, social context, uh, social environment, decision-making context are all really the determinants of what gets you somewhere. If you read business interviews and there's the question about, you know, what, what was the proportion of luck versus talent? I mean, maybe it's humility and modesty, which forces people to say, well, of course, it was mainly luck. But I think we underestimate the effect of randomness in our outcomes. Which book do you gift most regularly? Misbehaving by Richard Thaler. And I guess I would say that because most of the gifting I do is to people who are interested in behavioral science or interested enough but don't know enough. If I go outside of that community, then there's a novel written by a Bengali author called Vibhuti Bhushan Banerjee. Of course, only read the translation, but I give that. It's called Pathar Panchali. It's an amazing story. I learned about how to write by reading that book. What's your desert island music? Ah, that's an interesting one. So for me, Desert Island would be either Dire Straits or Supertramp. Oh, both good choices. And finally, winding down away from work, how do you spend your time? In my case, pretty much doing nothing in the backyard with a cup of tea is the best way to do it. Yeah, doing nothing is actually the right description for that. Very similar, at least right now, sitting outside with a glass of white wine from Spain and just enjoying the warm weather because I am in Spain. (laughs) 
You are in Barcelona. You're in absolutely the right place to do it at a lovely time of year. And of course, just to add that the book, if I'm not mistaken, is being released on May the 15th. That sounds right. Yes. And I'm sure we don't need to ask the question, where can you find it? Because I think people are more than capable of knowing how to buy a book nowadays, unless there's any special instructions that you need to share. No, the usual. Go to the Google search box and type it in and Google will show you the way. Go to your local bookstore. Go to your local bookstore. Support your local bookstore. Exactly. Great. So look, with that, Nida and Dilip, let me thank you both enormously for spending time with me today. I'm so glad actually we did it as a three because I think there's no doubt that the double perspective has added real richness to our conversation. And if I haven't made it already clear, I really believe as someone myself who straddles academic and organizational interest in behavioral science, that your research and that of your co-authors, of course, is crucial to the future success of behavioral science. So thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this. A lot of content and lots of ideas to absorb. Quite a lot of academic discussion, but the translation of BS into the wild is such valuable work, both for the future credibility of BS and societal well-being, that it's important for us to dive into the issues at hand. I hope it's made you think about BS principles, how they might apply in the organisations that you work in and with the people you surround yourself with. So let's get a discussion going. Do message me on Twitter at Daniel SJ Ross to let me know your experiences and thoughts on the matter. That'll make the subject all the richer. Next time on A Load of BS, I'll be talking to advertising legend Dave Trott about creativity. And this from a guy who's behind some of the very greatest ad campaigns of all time. Be well, look after yourself and those around you. Until next time.